We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. My name is Kate Johnson and I'm joined by Dr Ben Halliwell from the University of Tasmania. And I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana people, as we record on Lutruwita. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which you're listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. So Ben is joining us today as part of our mini-series highlighting plant science research in Tasmania with a focus on this big collaborative research project which we introduced in the first two episodes um, called the Centre for Plant Success. So Ben is a postdoctoral researcher at UTAS within the centre and Ben's current research focuses on the evolutionary relationships between plants in a field called phylogenetics as well as, well as lots of other, other interesting things. So Ben, to start with, I know you've worked with both plants and animals. Could you tell us a little bit about what drove you to first um, study biology and then have a career in it? Sure. Um, I guess always just had an, an interest in, in nature, I suppose. Um, grew up in rural Tasmania, close to the bush, um, spent a lot of time in the bush and um, uh, yeah, surrounded by farmlands, so I had a lot of contact with animals and I guess in the beginning my interest was mainly in animals and I originally majored in zoology, although plant science was a close second. <laughs> um, yeah. So I know um, you're working with plants now, but they haven't always been your focus. So can you tell us a little bit about the research you did before your current position? Sure. So um, I, I guess I started off my research career. My, my honours was working on um, uh, echidnas and ants and trophic ecology. So it was... Um, looking at how the feeding habits of ants differed between different habitats, how that influenced uh, the nutrient composition of their bodies and how that would flow on to influence the echidnas that fed on them. Um, and I changed track quite a lot for PhD, um, studied, moved toward uh, evolution, which has always, I guess, been the aspect of biology that fascinates me most. Um, uh, working in behavioral and evolutionary ecology on a native Tasmanian skink, um, Lyophilus whiteii. They're unusual species because they form family groups um, with monogamous pair bonds and uh, where juveniles delay dispersal and uh, live in the same burrow as mum and dad. So we were doing natural population observations and captive population experiments to try and understand what factors were influencing um, the formation of those social groups, um, their stability, their complexity. Um, but the final chapter of my PhD focused on, uh, it was a comparative analysis, and that's when I was first introduced to phylogenetics, which is now the field that I work in. And I think, again, the, um, I was really enticed by phylogenetics because of its, because of its um, how it describes evolutionary processes. 
Um, I was just really fascinated by this idea of a tree of life and um, what that represents and um, how, how we can know it and if we can know it. Um, so yeah, the final chapter of my PhD used a, um, uh, a phylogeny of, of squamates, lizards and snakes, to investigate the association between um, reproductive mode and social grouping across species. So in my PhD I looked at social grouping within one species and then we expanded that to a comparative project looking across species. And then I, I became really interested in, in that method and, and phylogenetics as, as a field and went on to do a postdoc in, um, at Lund University in Sweden under Charlie Cornwallis and he was focused on um, the evolution of cooperative breeding in birds. And so uh, through Charlie I learned more about the methodology of um, phylogenetic comparative methods and that's, um, that was my kind of um, entry into the centre, I guess. Um, my supervisor, Barbara Holland, specialises in phylogenetics and I collaborated with her on that final paper in my PhD. And so when the centre came around, um, uh, yeah, Barbara got in touch, which was great. That's really cool, Ben. And I wonder if um, you can just give us a sort of a brief layman's explanation of what a phylogenetic tree is and what you mean when you say that it um, depicts evolutionary processes, like what sort of evolutionary processes, what are you referring to when you say that? Sure, yeah. So people might be familiar with this idea of a tree of life, some kind of pictorial diagram that... Uh, describes the evolutionary relationships between species and so people are probably most familiar with the idea of a pedigree or um, a genealogy and a pedigree in it and pedigrees and genealogies relate individuals together in terms of um, yeah their, their, their relationships um, so mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and a map of relatedness between individuals and a phylogenetic tree is the um, the equivalent diagram but where the individuals are species so the 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 um, branch lengths connecting species in a phylogeny give us some indication of how closely related they are in evolutionary time and another way to think about that is um, how recently they have diverged from each other so it's possible by taking sequence data. Um, so if we have the genetic information, then we can produce um, a hypothesis of a phylogenetic tree, what we, how we think these species are related to each other based on the sequence information we've taken from their genetics. And from that we form a, a phylogeny and then we can use that for all sorts of purposes. Yeah, cool. And that's... Um it's obviously really quite broadly applicable across a lot of biology. Like you've you've made this switch from from animals to plants, applying, mm. I assume, somewhat some of the same principles. So how how's that switch been for you? Uh, the switching from animals to plants. It's been great, actually. I suppose that during a during a PhD or or any higher degree research, you kind of become very focused and um, perhaps myopic in in. Um, what you're what you're thinking about and that's a necessary part I guess of, of kind of um, trying to to really understand something but it, it 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 has been a pleasant surprise how easy it was to apply 
what I'd learnt to a different study system. Mm. And I guess because my interest has already always been in evolution more generally, the same principles really apply and we can use we can use the same types of data to create the phylogenetic trees. We can use the same um, modelling approaches to ask questions about how traits have evolved on those trees, which is more um, specifically what I do. Um, rather than infer the trees directly from the sequence data, my research focuses more on using the trees to ask questions like, have these two traits tended to co-evolve through time? Uh, how many times has a certain phenotype evolved independently? Um, so we can ask questions about functional relationships between different traits. And it's been really satisfying actually thinking about more applied problems in the centre, whereas previously my research was more pure about evolutionary theory. And um, But in the centre there's a real um, focus on practical outcomes backed up by, by an incredible um, multidisciplinary scientific approach um, but, but essentially about um, coming up with, with practical um, answers to, to pressing problems um, which is uh, yeah very um, inspiring and um, energizing and it's been good I haven't you know I'm, 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 I'm converted I think <laughs> well um, yeah play, you know um, well, let's say I'm agnostic I think you know plants or animals are both are good in my book yeah Oh, that's great. I'm really glad that that, that change has been good for you um, to evolve. That's really cool. Um, so stay with us for the next part of the episode where we'll hear a bit more about Ben's role in the um, centre. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking to Dr Ben Halliwell from the School of Natural Sciences at UTAS and the Centre for Plant Success. So Ben, you're a postdoctoral researcher. Can you just quickly define for us what that means? Sure. So um, it's a someone who's employed as a research scientist after completing their doctorate. So um, after you complete your PhD, if you're employed as, as a research scientist, um, it's often as a postdoctoral researcher. So we heard a bit about your research through the centre, the, before the centre and through the centre, um, using some of the same principles. What other initiatives are you part of as part of the centre? I know um, Vanessa talked in our previous episode about the um, video game that you're making. Sure. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of exciting avenues of research to pursue in the centre So there and, and a lot of kind of... Um, a really strong focus on science communication and outreach, which um, I'm very interested in. Um, so, yeah, one project which is very much in its infancy, but that we're all very excited about, should it come to fruition, is um, when when it comes to fruition, <laughs> I should say, um, is yeah, developing a uh, a game that aims to kind of educate about. Uh, tr- evolutionary trade-offs and uh, the role of genes in producing a plant's phenotype which is um, its observable characteristics as well as the strong research focus of the centre they also um, have a really strong focus on science communication and outreach a really important part of the 
of what's produced in the centre is um, that the, the science is ethical and um, inclusive um, and helps translate and demystify um, some of the research to the to the general public, which I'm really excited and passionate about. We also have um, are kind of exploring exploring a number of different projects, um, working as I said on uh, comparative analyses in eucalyptus, but also in um, the Andropogonae, which is a family of um, tropical and subtropical grasses, mm -hmm. trying to understand uh, the evolution of traits like flowering time. Um, and also, more more broadly, um, environmental tolerances similar similar to the uk work, um, and hoping there to take a kind of uh, phylo GWAS approach, which is uh, stands for phylogenetic genome wide association study, where basically you can, with enough sequence data, um, which is the the, you know, the genetic code, um, with enough information on 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 that sequence across species we can start to do things like identify specific parts of the genome or even particular genes that are associated with particular environments or environmental extremes which can then give us targeted more yeah more targets really then can then give us targets to study more in depth or um inform breeding programs to try and increase the resilience of our crops or to even to identify um, native crops that might be um, potential substitutes uh, given projections of climate change finding um, native crops that that grow or native crop alternatives that grow well in this climate um, and under these conditions has a lot of benefits both ecologically and um, economically and agriculturally. This could be you know a naive perspective but coming into the centre as a as um as someone who's relatively new to plant plant science in terms of research seeing all the amazing imaging that's produced um, in in the centre including by yourself Kate <laughs> uh, and, and other people in the in um, uh, the Broadrid lab um, it, did, it does make me wonder whether or not the same principles of computer vision that have been applied so successfully in the medical sciences sphere, whether or not those, those um, it could be used in the same way to, to understand things about plant anatomy from all the, from all the amazing high quality images we have of plant anatomy. Um, yeah, aside from that, I'm uh, co-supervising a PhD student in the centre um, Gabby Hartle, who's a part of the project looking at adaptation to um, climatic extremes in eucalyptus. Wow, so many things, Ben. That's awesome. Um, I have some random comments. First of all, um, anthropogony is a great word. <laughs> I think that um, it's underrated how good the Latin names are for all the plants and animals in biology. It's a really fun part of it all. Also, that app sounds really cool because when, when we were talking to Tim, when I interviewed him um, for this series, he was talking about how the main focus of the centre is how we're going to feed the world, how, how we're going to do that with increasing population. Um, and so... 
that genome-wide association study you were talking about sounds really interesting, identifying those um, alternatives that are out in nature already that, that might be good at feeding the world. What do you think are some really big benefits of being part of something that, that draws in all these, all these different people from all these different areas? It is certainly the, um, the scope and, uh, I guess, diversity of academics that's involved in the centre is... Is, is pretty astonishing and it's it's very um, I, I suppose in the beginning it's it can be overwhelming because there are so many people as you say coming from different disciplines who have a different um, lexicon and you know there are there's 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 a lot of jargon that needs to be uh, decoded mm-hmm. and um, for us all to be able to communicate effectively but I think it's it's being handled very well the um, the the HR and the admin of the um, centre is very carefully considering how they can connect um, academics and and foster um, uh, you know enough communication and, and workshopping and seminars that we start to be able to talk each other's language, and it's it is a very exciting to to um, to think of what could be achieved because particularly with you know yeah, there's um, the centre has a very strong um, focus in in mathematics and and statistical modeling um just as strong as it's as its focus in um in in plant biology and and physiology and evolution so there's the real potential for um some real breakthrough science i think um in the kind of bringing the knowledge of the biology um to to those who understand how to develop um methods that model um those processes and um we can already, st- you know, start to see some um, some really innovative work um, being developed. Yeah, it's all very exciting, isn't it, to have the the funding and the time and mm. the pool of skills and the passion in this big group of people to answer what is a really important global problem. Um, So stay with us for part three, where we're going to talk to Ben about his general postdoc experience and maybe his advice to others. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Kate Johnson and we're joined by Ben Halliwell from the University of Tasmania. So Ben, can you tell us a little bit um, on the more sort of personal experience side, how your postdoc experience has been, what you've learnt so far? Sure, yeah. I, um, so I, my journey might be slightly atypical in that I had quite a large um, break after... So after I finished my PhD, I had a, a short postdoc in Sweden, which was just a s- six-month project. And then um, upon returning home, uh, I switched to the primary carer of um, our one daughter, now two at the time. Um, so yeah, I had a year and a half as a stay-at-home dad. And uh, that was a, a, a beautiful experience. And um, But I, the return to work was... I. I had a bit of trepidation, I guess, because I'd been away for so long that um, I felt like my my mind was far away from my work. I felt that um, I, you know, when 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 you're a working academic, you know, you, you you spend so much time reading and thinking on your field that um, 
perhaps you don't realize that uh, you know, that's kind of like a working knowledge that needs to be maintained. And when you step away from it for an extended period, you kind of feel like you don't know anything anymore. And you feel <laughs> it's, it's a, so I was daunted to step back into it, but, but I also, there was a kind of um, a longing, you know, I missed mm. my work, even, even though I, I really enjoyed my time at home. Mm. Um, I, I, I definitely missed my work. So when I, when I returned to work, I was nervous. Um, I felt like an imposter. Um, but I have an incredibly supportive research team, um, sorry, supervision team in Barbara Holland and Jim Weller. I really couldn't be luckier in that regard. They're both very understanding of my, um, you know, commitment to family. And um, uh, I returned full time, but now I'm working four days a week, which is... Um, uh, was miraculous and something that I would certainly recommend to anyone who, who it suited and who um, whose institution supported it. Yeah, for me, going four days a week was um, was uh, was a fantastic um, transition, and I feel I feel more I actually feel more engaged with work. I feel like I get just as much work done, um, and. And I feel like I have more to give to my family and, and my kids. And so that, um, that has been, that's, yeah, I would recommend that. Um, despite the trepidation with coming back to work, much, I think much of it is self-imposed, you know, it's kind of um, the classic imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. But now that I've been back in the saddle for a bit over a year, mm -hmm. uh, I'm feeling more comfortable and just really inspired. I think um, taking a break was healthy and, um, and I'm glad that I had that opportunity to spend that time with um, our daughter when she was young. Um, so, yeah, but getting back to work is really, um, I, I feel like um, it's where I'm supposed to be, if only four days a week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so great. And thanks for sharing that with us, Ben. And, um, it's so great that your supervisors have been really supportive of the fact that there are things important outside of science. And I think that is a really important thing that you've touched on there, is the, the idea that, you know, science isn't scientists' whole lives. You know, we're whole people. We have other interests. We have other passions. Um, and I think that building a type of science where that's completely acceptable and the norm is, yeah, it's really important. And it's great that your supervisors support that. Um, so what would be your advice to other people, maybe embarking on their postdoc journey or even just thinking about going into research? Mm. Potentially generic, but perhaps still <laughs> true. Um, I guess just to, for me, I, things, things are easiest when I, when I lean into what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So when I don't try and fight against my natural tendencies then things tend to go smoothly I guess so um, and you know sometimes you know it's ideal if what you want to do is also the most impactful science um, but I think identifying what you really like and what what um, kind of you know ignites your interest is probably the most important thing because then you're happy to do it and happy to you know you're happy to if, if you wake up thinking about it then I think it's a you know it's a good thing to, to be researching. And so that's what, it's taken me a while to, to settle on that, but I think that's normal. You know, that's, I think that's natural for a lot of people that, especially during your PhD, it's a very explorative and, and formative kind of experience. And then when you come out the other end, obviously your, what, what you do for work is dictated 
to some extent by the grant you're on or the or your supervisory team but finding and pursuing that thing that that you act, that you wake up thinking about i think is one of the most important things because then you get you know you're going to be engaged you're going to be passionate and then work's just fun um and aside from that just self-care you know i think you know relating back to the the four days a week thing i think for me going four days a week was just a was just a a very holistic um or had a had a holistic outcome it was you know it it benefited all aspects of my life it benefited my work and and my my home because it can be a consuming profession for sure and it can be a demanding profession especially if you're um you know uh if you're shooting for a for a um to be a, a, a high-powered academic, then it's, it's a very competitive environment, and um, and if that's what if that's what you want, then that's great. But um, for a lot of people, you know, a, a bit of balance is a more sustainable, um, yeah, is a more sustainable life, I guess, a more sustainable course of action. So, yeah, balance, self-care, follow your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> that's all excellent advice, Ben. And thanks so much for joining us today. Um, so if you like that episode, you can um, listen in at our usual slot every week. We love bringing you science-related content and we hope you enjoyed the show. And you can also get in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz. And you can find all our previous episodes on our website at thatscience.org. My name is Kate Johnson and I'd like to thank again today's guest, Dr. Ben Halliwell, and chat to you next time. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.